0: Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley.
1: And uh, I failed phys and
0: English all the way through high school. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the the dark force here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. Please excuse the audio quality in the first few seconds of this episode. It's entirely my fault. I just didn't hit the record button properly. Thanks. Okay. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and a nutrition professor, and I'm, uh, well, <laughs> I guess I'll say former competitive bodybuilder, but you know, there may be a little bit more of that in my future.
2: Uh, this is Phil Stevens, strength coach, founder of LiftForHope.org, and I'm
0: also a Highland Games strongman and powerlifting competitor. Okay, today we have with us uh, John Mike, and uh, Fortress m- may call in here if he gets a chance. Uh, but John Mike is a uh, doctoral student at University of New Mexico, and he's also a certified strength conditioning specialist, Highland Games competitor, uh, and really, uh, John, if you can just sort of. Yeah.
1: Hey, folks. Um, Yeah. Thanks for having me on, you guys. I really appreciate it. So, yeah, just like Lonnie said, uh, I'm actually in the final stages of working on my uh, Ph.D. in exercise physiology here at University of New Mexico. Got my uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees. Also in exercise science and been a strength and conditioning coach uh, for a few years uh, when I was an undergrad and part of grad school for baseball, softball, track, and swimming. And then um, at another Division One school in my hometown for uh, women's soccer, softball, I think men's soccer, and field hockey. Um, and then competing in Strongman
2: uh,
1: for the last three years and uh, doing some other cool um, you know, projects and so forth. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's good to be on. Cool.
0: Um- What I want to do first, and I know some listeners are familiar with you if they've been listening at all to some of the experiments versus experience episodes over the last year or so. But um, just one of the things we usually ask people is, you know, why do you do sort of the the bizarre niche sport that you do? I mean, whether it's you know strongman or 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 powerlifting, bodybuilding—these are not the kind of things that the media says, "Hey, go do these," you know, like they might with basketball or something. So. What, what what are the origins there?
1: Well, I mean, I've always been fairly strong, you know, genetically, and I used to be a competitive swimmer, then I played football um, in, in college for uh, almost a few years, and then I didn't compete um, for about 10 years after that when I started doing Strongman, and, and just, uh, you know, of course, you see it on TV, and, you know, it's really exciting, it's very dynamic, and saw some flyers one day when I first moved out here to Albuquerque about a strongman contest, and so I went to go check it out and uh, met one of the promoters, and about two or three weeks later, started going up to his house and train, and uh, it just kind of came, you know, fairly natural, you know, to me, just like the events, um, like the intensity of it, and so just, uh, you know, little by little, just started competing, did the first few competitions, um, you know, just for fun, just to kind of do something different, and then uh, I started getting a little bit more serious into it and uh, just did another two contests this summer uh, back-to-back. And I think um, to kind of get to where you're going, at, uh, um, I like to do things that most people are just not really willing to do. And you somewhat, you know, you can be an outcast or, you know, an outsider to, you know, other people. And, you know, when you want to go out and, and people want to go out and say, hey, you know, let's get some beers or whatever. And you're like, no, well, i have to. And I'm training for a competition. I can't necessarily go out, and if I do, I'm going to have you know a diet Coke or you know uh, you know some heavier food and you know, what they might be doing. But um, I just like doing things that other people are not really willing to do, kind of like the extreme type of sports, and that's really what it is. It doesn't get a lot of mainstream coverage, um, like you said, unlike other sports, but
2: um, you know
1: it doesn't really bother me. I'm, I'm still going to continue to do it:
0: Right. Yeah, just, uh, so listeners know, I mean, um, I, I, I've, I've seen John quite a few times. He, he's a big dude too. I, I almost wish I was taller. And Phil, you might think that's an excuse, but I think strongman stuff looks really fun, but I just don't know. My hands are small. I'm too short. That's what I think anyway. In fact, Ed, Eddie, Eddie Cohn once said to Rob and I, you know, we said, would you ever think about strongman or anything? He goes, no, I'm too small. Uh, which is kind of crazy to hear that.
2: A lot of the events you just need to be big, especially if you're going to be at the high level. I mean, you look at guys like Derek Poundstone and, you know, he's got wrists the size of my calves, so. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, I mean, just like Phil said, I mean, it certainly helps to be tall, especially, I mean, obviously you have to be big, you've got to be strong, and you have to be fast. I mean, having those three big combinations will certainly get you very far, and you really need a lot of extra body mass. For a lot of events like, you know, truck pull or, um, you know, arm-over-arm truck pull or, or whatever because that extra body mass is going to help, you know, obviously with leverage. But, you know, it's, especially at the um, the top amateur level and at the pro level, you don't see many people that are under six feet tall. So I would say six feet, you know, the six one is, is really the minimum um, height that you really need to be at
2: to, to really just do overall as well and place high. Yeah. 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 I mean, sure, there's some, you know, 18-inch deadlifts and stuff like that you're going to have. You know, a shorter guy's going to have his his benefits, but any loading event and stuff like that, you're kind of behind the the truck if
0: you're short. Right. Well, I, I think about, like, Atlas stones and stuff. You know what I mean? If your arms are long, how can that not help, you know, stuff like that, so... Well, okay, so John, I, I know you're busy with uh, finishing your PhD and all that kind of stuff, but I guess the, now would be the time to, to talk about any kind of uh, projects or things that are keeping you busy right now. Is it just graduate school? Uh, or-
1: well, no. I'm, I usually teach. Uh, right now, I'm you know, teaching four um, classes right now, and some of the side projects, besides uh, I'm getting, getting ready to take my um, written and oral comps here within the next couple of months, but. So my dissertation uh, pilot work is going to be continued this fall and what I actually would like to do is to utilize and maximize um, some of the EMG um, data and research and um, look at different set and rep schemes for some of the main lifts like squat, overhead press, um, deadlift, stiff leg deadlift, um, not necessarily bench and especially those three. Um, the way I like to set it up, I'm not going to actually do a pure training study um, because it's just too, um, way too in depth and takes a, a really long time, and a lot of times it's just a big headache. Right. But I for guess. those three exercises, um, look at like different sets and reps that really haven't really been done in the resistance training uh, literature, for example, you know, eight sets of three, you know, speed deads, you know, versus you know, say three sets of eight of you know, moderate weight for hypertrophy purposes. Um, you know, say five by five, um, or a um, a wave type of protocol from a wave type of periodization, um, similar to like a, a Jim Wendler type of protocol, like a five three one um, type of protocol, and look at the um, the fatigue decrement and the fatigue response, and look into um, uh, some uh, see if we can establish some conclusions and, and insights into motor unit recruitment um, in terms of, uh, you know, fiber type transition and things like that. So um, it's kind of in the beginning stages right now, um, and I'll know a lot more um, as the you know, semester and as the year progresses. So that's that's currently that's where I am with that.
0: You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, listeners, or it might have been a few months ago now, we had Nick Bird on who was a, a doc student in Stu Phillips' lab, and he was looking at the optimal number of uh, reps and sets for maximal protein synthesis, and I see your work as almost being analogous on the powerlifter side instead of just looking at muscle growth you're looking at sort of maximal neural firing right i mean in fatigue and strength type thing
1: yeah, it is and uh a lot in and, and for my research i mean i'm I'm a more of an applied individual because I think a lot of you know trainers and coaches out there. Um, want some more insight into some of the protocols that they're utilizing. And when you look at, for the majority of, you know, resistance training research, no matter what they're doing, it's typically some of the more common protocols like, you know, 3 times 8 or 3 times 10 to 12, um, you, know, you know, 4 times, you know, 8 to 12 or whatever. There's not a lot of other um, non traditional methods in terms of sets and reps that they're utilizing you know because all this all these coaches and trainers are doing a variety of different things instead and reps so um i think it's definitely um has a a great deal of potential um and
2: certainly really needs to get out there no that's interesting i mean the three sets of 10 to 12 or whatever i mean did did that become like dogma first or did that become like traditional because that's what has been used in in the laboratory setting as tests? You know, I mean, well it's, it's kinda I mean, interesting I'm you said sure. that. I mean Yeah. I don't think it's been um
1: implemented from the lab. I think it's just really stems from some of the early you know types of bodybuilding days because that is what elicited um or, or maximized the hypertrophy response um in terms of you know maybe the sixties or seventies, you know, early days of of bodybuilding. Um and I think that, that um those traditional sets and reps um, I just kind of stuck around um I mean one I mean they do work you know, let's not be mistaken there, but um there's many other things out there that are more effective or equally effective besides this those you know three times you know eight to ten or whatever so um and a, a lot of times the you know researchers you know in the lab um you know probably lack a lot of you know practical experience on the field and working with different types of athletes in sports, um, so they may not be familiar with these other protocols that have been around, um, but they just unfortunately haven't been exposed to it to do um, the, the adequate amounts of, of research that we need um, in, in the strength training literature and, and in the field.
0: Right. Lay some groundwork. It's funny that you mentioned like the old school guys because I, I thought about there was – a. There was a period there where, was it Arthur Jones? Was it the Nautilus guy? And like he had Casey Vieter and, you know, in, into all that kind of high intensity stuff and like one set. And I remember in the uh, American Society of Exercise Physiology journal a couple of years ago, there was a sort of a, a critique of, you know, whether one set was enough. Did you need more than one set? So I think it's very cool that we're fi- finally seeing some, work on whether it's protein synthesis like Nick Bird is doing or, or, you know, like EMG work. Because like you said, you have to lay some groundwork because you can't – it's one thing just to have a coach say, I think three sets of eight or three sets of ten is best. But for all we know, a lot of that sort of evolved out of just an hour-long workout. You know what I mean? If you're going to train a couple of different movements – Oh, about three sets each. We can get done in an hour. You know, I mean, it could be something as as simple as that when, when a coach's opinion is the basis. So the kind of data that you can provide on actual neural firing, you know, with the electromyography and stuff, that's going to be very sweet because, you know, I, I see you getting sort of referenced a lot in the future if you do that kind of stuff. You know, it's sort of...
1: And if you guys, I know both of you guys have seen, There's there still continues to be... Um, you no know, debate over, you know, single versus multiple sets. I mean, despite methodology discrepancies, um, it's, I mean, the majority of, of literature states that multiple sets is, is far superior. But a lot of times, you know, you still have the one versus three set protocol. And even if you find a difference versus, you know, one or the other, uh, how meaningful is that? Is there any practical or biological significance? Because it's only a two-set difference. I mean, it, it's really not going to make that much of a big deal versus if you did, say, three sets versus, you know, eight sets of three for speed or, you know, five-by-five five or, you know, six for two or something like that just to have a, a difference in uh, comparison. So,
0: And, you know, from a bodybuilding perspective, one of the things that I thought about quite a bit after we spoke with Nick was That, okay, so three sets seems to be optimal. You know, one set will increase protein synthesis, three sets is better. But from a a bodybuilding sort of, like you said, you know, when you go out into the field, you go into the gym, um, you don't just do one movement. So maybe I do three sets of curls, but then maybe I do reverse curls or I involve the brachialis or brachioradialis a little bit more or something. You know what I mean? So maybe the protein uh, synthesis stimulus is you know, more specific in the second movement that I do. So it's not that the researchers are lost, it's just that they've got to control their experiments and the stage we're at right now is, you know, what three sets of, let's say, just bench press will do. Not bench press plus a burnout session with flies afterwards or something, you know? so Yeah, I
1: mean, most people are doing much more than just three sets of any, you know, one or, you know, given exercise anyway, so. Um.
0: Sure. So you, so you start to activate, you know, the accessory muscles, you know, um, other types of things, you know, different – it's not just the prime mover, you know. Um, and I think about stuff like back. I don't think anybody would, would be so naive as to say, well, three sets of, I don't know, a particular row – let's say pull down. Three sets of pull down is going to max out, you know, my protein synthesis or something. Well, how many different ways, angles, and muscle – specific muscles can you – Focus on in your freaking back, you know. Yeah,
1: I mean, they they typically just do like only one exercise, like 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 you said, lat pull downs. I hardly see uh, a lot of research discuss barbell rows from the floor from a strict type of position, um, or single arm dumbbell rows, or you know, uh, standing rows, or whatever it is. It's always something that's um, a little bit too simple, but at the same time. Uh, for their specific studies, and, and you see, you know, machines used quite a bit, which has no to little application on the on the field when you're working with these athletes. Um, a lot of times they use, you know, the machines or just the simple movements because they're just easier to quantify. But right. at the same time, what people are doing on the field, you know, and these coaches and trainers is, is not necessarily – you know, simple. There's more quantification to what they're doing. So there needs to be more, you know, overall synthesis and application.
0: Right. It's just a stepwise process. I think that's what a lot of people who are, oh, those scientists don't know those eggheads. It's, that's not so much it. It's the you have to do this tightly controlled one step at a time. And, you know, guys like Nick or like you, John, you know, you, you'll, you take that next step and then someone will take a step after you and add even more. And over time, you start to realize, you know, uh, y- I don't want to say the perfect training protocol because there's genetic differences, of course. But, yeah, you get closer and closer because you just have more quantitative, you know, numbers-based information, you know, instead of just coaches' opinions, which just opens up, you know, that's like analog versus digital. You know, that there's too much noise there, and professional opinion is actually one of the lowest forms of evidence when you talk about evidence-based practice, so – uh, well, let me tie, let me bring this back around real, just real quick. So, before we go on to the topic of the day, because it's actually along similar lines, um, anything else you want to tell us that you're up to? I mean, are you real active online? I know you do some NSCA stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, well, obviously, with you, I'm a assistant editor and columnist for the American Society of Exercise Physiologists monthly newsletter. So, uh, you know, we've been doing that for the last you know, three years. And then I'm also a, a senior contributor commentator for. The NSCA Online Discussion Forums, I've been doing that for about three years. Um,
2: and then every once in
1: a while, I'll do some uh, consumer mags, like some, you know, brief commentary or contributions for Oxygen or uh, Maximum Fit Mag. And then I just finished um, the, uh, a, book, uh, a book chapter for um, case studies and sports application for protein and strength athletes, um, which I believe, uh, I think has been mentioned on this show before. I don't think of the book will come out sometime mid early next year. So, um, those are, uh, some of the other uh, main things I've been doing. Um, and then I've done some publications for idea fitness journal and just get ready to submit one for ACSM health and fitness journal. So, um, cool. And, uh, so those, those are some of the other main things that, uh, I've done along with, uh, so, so yeah pretty busy guy
0: <laughs> and you know it, it's it, let me reiterate cuz John was already saying this but he's got competition cred too and that's one of the themes i really like about this show is you know you've got some educated people but you know it's also the idea of having some sort of you know competitive experience and you know, be, being able to see problems from both sides and, you know, help out people who might be interested in competing in a different sport or, or interested in the science that underlies it because it really is our, our best source of sort of error correcting machinery as we move along. Um, there's not always time to rely just on science and that's why, you know, there's the art of coaching sort of exists. Plus there's psychological issues and everything else, but anyway.
2: We kind of touched on that when we were talking about the, you know why the three sets of ten and or whatnot is used in the lab. Most often, it's you know some of the some of the lab people that just don't have the, the street cred and the experience to even know that other things exist. And I mean, I think it's a it's good to have people walking both lines. You know, I mean, yeah,
0: it's true. I mean, I have to go ahead.
2: Oh no, I just say absolutely, you have to
1: and. I think it kind of overall gives you a little bit more, um, you know, credibility, and you have additional perspective be, because, just like Phil said, you can see things from uh, both angles as opposed to just you know one or the other exclusively. Right.
0: And let's face it, like 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 Phil said, you can't just go with the pure egghead because even though it's well controlled, it's it, it, the external validity, right? The ability to apply that information to actual practices. It can be quite limited for genetic reasons, psychological reasons, or even just, and that's what's fun about us. We can all sort of talk about what people are doing in the gym. And you can almost look at strength competitors like, like an anthropologist goes and lives with a culture for a while and learns about them. In fact, that actually happened once a couple of decades ago. Maybe a, a listener can, can remind me who that is. But he actually lived amongst some of the bodybuilders at Venice Beach and sort of documented them like they were a tribe, you know, in some distant land or something. And it was fascinating though, because he was looking at, and I could tell stories about it, because I remember sort of the stories from the book, very interesting and almost disturbing, but it, we can kind of, as members of the tribe, in a sense, you know, say, hey, yeah, what about the five versus, you know, five sets of five or, or some of these other ideas? Um, you know, that we do ourselves or that we see people do, because you're sort of bringing this just awareness to the scientific community. Hey, let's go document these cool things because they really seem to be working. You know, just because it hasn't been documented yet doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. We just need to document it and and tweak it. Yeah,
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was one of the things that that ISSN that I went to with you and it was like, you know, in the end they were you know, they they all said it doesn't really matter that. Sure, the lab matters, but if it works when it hits the road, you know, if it's working in the real world and we just don't know why yet, then use it, <laughs> you know. And, I mean, there's, there's plenty of exercise protocols out there that, you know, maybe we'll never know why they work exactly, but, you know, sure, they're working. And there's people out there using them, getting real damn strong doing it, so. Absolutely. Yeah, I
1: there's mean, just so much out there. There's so much out there, I mean, to be done. And comparatively, when you look at the research, you know, endurance training versus, you know, strength training, I mean, overall in scope, I mean, there's just so much lacking in the overall, you know, strength and conditioning literature. There's so much out there that needs to be further explored that just has not And just like Phil said, we may, we may never know. Um, but, you know, one of the things, at least my philosophy is, you know, I just had a huge desire and passion to educate and just be an overall, you know, consumer advocate to everybody along with the other, you know, professional responsibilities that I have. And, you know, that's, um, I, I'm just going to continue to do that, um, till, uh, you know, till the grade, I guess. So,
0: right on. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's, let's talk, uh, the topic of the day. Phil, do you have that, that bumper music? okay uh this topic came up actually in a conversation that uh, John and I were having just recently, uh, and we thought it would be good to discuss on the air we we've we've talked about the optimal number of sets or reps before, but one of the things i know we've probably touched on it some uh but is sort of weekly frequency and body part splits right again things that there's lots of opportunities to document these things and nuances behind them whether it's you know, neuromuscular function or protein synthesis or, or whatever. So I would, I just, uh, well, really John did, had this idea that what about talk of, you know, the pros and cons of different body part splits. And now let me start with a brief story. When I first started training, and I bet this is true of a lot of people, I trained on like a six on one off split, you know, um, and that's not, probably not optimal. I mean, for so many reasons. I read the muscle magazines, you know, I remember nineteen eighty three I looked at a magazine with Samir Benut on the cover and my sister got it got it for me as a joke and I mean I actually took it seriously. And but you know, young guys who are not using all kinds of, you know, androgens and stuff, they they can't do three hour workouts six days a week and expect to gain tons of mass, especially if they're not eating, you know, heroic amounts of food. Uh so eventually you ever I think we all evolve, right? And we start to say, okay, how am I gonna split up my workouts? Am I gonna do like the classic push pull routine, you know, like chest and triceps one day, back and biceps the next, and then legs on the third, or or however that is, you know. So John has some good information on this kind of stuff. And Phil, I want to pick your brain over time too and you know, because I'm sort of in this bodybuilding world, and it would be cool to see how you split things up, which is probably m- movement-based, you know, bench squat deadlift or something or accessory day or whatever. So there's lots of uh, – or, you know, even the Highland Games or the Strongman stuff. So let's start with you, though, John. How uh How many days a week do you think is too much? What are the pros and cons, you know, of that stuff?
1: You know, talking about five to six days a week, I think that's actually a very good place to start because I actually did that um, as well my first four to five years of training. And from my observations, uh, you know, lifting in various types of gyms, that's typically how most people would train these days. The majority of people, they train five to six days a week, Um, you know, mainly because of the influence of, you know, all the mags and the muscle mags. But when you train five to six days a week, typically for those that are listening, you typically do one to two major body parts, you know, per session. So, for example, on Monday, you know, people call it National Chest Day. So, you know, for the whole Monday session is, you know, nothing but chest, four or five, six exercises, um, you know, uh, in, the, in the moderate rep range. But, you know, and, and this is some of my theories and ideas have just come from over the years of training for, you know, well over a decade. Typically for the five to six days a week session, again, you know, one or two major body parts per session, one of the things that people have to understand and realize is that overall it's low frequency, okay? Um, so you're only doing one to two things per week, and it's typically once a week. So, for example, if you do a day's worth of chest on Monday, and then the next day, Tuesday, you do entire workout session worth of back, and then Wednesday, something else, Thursday, something else, et cetera, et cetera. What you have to understand is that because it's a low frequency, the amount of volume set you know, reps and, and somewhat weight had to be very high. Um, again, because it's low frequency, and also you're not going to be doing that same regimen until the following week. So by Thursday or Friday, you may be fully recovered, and by the time you get to the next Monday session, you know, over time in the subsequent weeks and months, you run a severe risk of the detraining effect. The second um, thing about the five, six days a week is that, again, you have to do so much additional volume. And because you do so much volume on Monday, the next day, for example, you have to do more volume. So over the, the given week and the subsequent weeks, you have the accumulation of volume over time, which runs the severe risk of even overtraining because in terms of overtraining, simplistically, volume and intensity are the two major causes of, of overtraining. So those are the things, at least in my experience, I'm sure you guys will agree, of doing the five- to six-day-a-week uh, type of protocol. So,
0: right. Let's let's talk a little bit about the different uh, physiological factors. So, like, Overtraining uh, for listeners is a very complex sort of multifaceted thing. It's not just nervous system. It's not just hormonal. You know, and, and as John pointed out, there's there's two primary types of overtraining. There's sympathetic overtraining and parasympathetic overtraining, and in a way, they're sort of opposite, right? Sympathetic overtraining is, you know, you see some of that work from like Fry and and his colleagues. They're having people do ten maxes every day you know, for a week or more. And they become so overhyped that they have like high adrenaline levels all the time and that kind of stuff. And that's sort of the opposite of the volume type or the parasympathetic overtraining where people get exhausted and their adrenaline levels are actually lower all the time and that kind of stuff. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about that. So what are some of the, the, the different factors? You know, let's say someone didn't Train five, six days a week I mean how do you make it how do you make a mistake
1: Well, I kind of wanted to uh, talk about you know some people do like the three days a week like total body, and then the three days a week like a upper total lower split and then the you know a four day split so um, okay. let me just kind of run through that real fast. you know a lot of people do the three days a week total body right um you know and i 've done that before in the past, and it does work, but again, I think you run. It's very similar to the volume issue, like the five to six days a week. Um, With the total body, you know, for most people, they're going to just do one exercise, you know, per, you know, major muscle group or whatever um, Mm -hmm. for any given day, like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. um, And then Wednesday and Friday, they do total body again, but different exercises. But most people just don't want to do one exercise. They want to keep adding and adding. So they end up adding extra volume. More or less indirectly, and so as the individual becomes stronger, okay, um, they lose the ability to recover because the intensity um, is just is, is going to go up. They're going to have to bump up the intensity, so they're going to have to increase the weight per a given exercise or per a given session. So, they over time, they lose the ability to recover because one, the volume is still there a little bit, but two, they're only getting one day's rest before the next total body session.
0: Right on. Yep. Yep. Fortress and I talk about that a lot that once you get strong as hell. <laughs> and I consider Phil strong as hell. John, I know you are and Fortress is too. Now, you could say that beginners have the same 90% of their one rep max, you know, percentage wise, they're training just as intensely on their high intensity days as you are. But make no mistake, you get that strong. And, you know, like Phil was saying, he he was squatting 500 for a five or something the other day. If if you get a beginner, you know, his 90% intensity might might be only five reps. Yeah, fine, that's the same. But the weight is 185 pounds, you know. So the amount of damage to his chassis is what Fortress would say or the amount of, you know, stress on your structure is grossly different even though the percentage of your one rep max is very high. And and I totally get that, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's something that people don't really understand is that the percentage might be the same, but it's not – I mean, you can say it's relative and it is, but it's not uniformly relative, you know, to the person all around. I mean, because it's like 80% of 405 is, you know, 315 or whatever it is, and, you know, 80% of 225 is, you know, yeah. one seventy-one eighty-five or something. You know, right. like you just right. said, the percentage is the same, but the difference in the amount of weight is just night and day.
2: Yeah. No, and that's one thing I'd, I'd like to touch on here is just the big difference in you know, beginner versus advanced and and how maybe they lay it out. I mean, because the resounding theme I've seen is all the big, strong guys I know are now training less and less and less, and it's getting more simple and simple and simple because, like we are talking about, I mean, I like to look at beginners and advanced people, and we look at their margins. You know, when you're a beginner, you have this very small margin, and it takes very little to get you outside of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But then it also takes you a very little time to get back in. Whereas, you know, you get advanced and you have this big, huge margin. And i got to step way out here to get out of it. And it takes that much more time to get back where I'm, you know, recovered and healthy again. So, I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the differences in frequency and and, and whatnot. I mean, how does that change as one advances? Well, I think for... The novice individuals and, and for the most part a lot of
1: intermediate uh, individuals. Like for some of the classes I teach, I don't really think a lot of novice individuals, I think they can handle, they can handle a lot more volume, but I don't yeah. think it's wise to give them a lot of volume all at one time. Like when they're, you know, when I'm teaching someone how to do a squat or overhead press, I just tell them to keep it, you know, four to, you know, three to four steps, you know, keep, stick to the five to six rep range. I mean, they're going to get the neural adaptation and neural component anyway, but if they start doing more volume and and, and a lot more reps, the technique and the form, you know, start to go to hell. And so, you know, they need to stick with the form first, Um, you know, and and once they get that down, it's not going to take, you know, it's going to take weeks for them to get it because during that time, um, you have development, um, you know, of the motor cortex and all those movement patterns. Um, So get the technique first. Um, And then you know, and the weight will come as the individual becomes more highly trained in in the upper intermediate range, especially the advanced. You know, then you can start to do you know more volume and start to bump up the intensity. Um, From what I've learned, you know, simply just from competing, even the even the times that I'm not training for a contest, the volume and intensity really have to be at a certain threshold just for you to kind of maintain that, that. Just. Just for you to sort of stay in the game, kind of mentally and physically. Because if you back up on the volume and intensity, sort of, you know, at the times of not training for a contest, when it comes time to train for a contest, you gotta step it up big time and then you just, you just start to get gassed and your central nervous system is extremely just fried. And then I just want to touch on real fast, then you have other individuals that do Three days per week, but they do an upper total lower split um, and or rotation with that too. You don't necessarily have the volume issue per se, but then you start to run into a frequency issue um, because you're only doing again one lower um, or total um, session like per week, even though you may do uh, you know another uh, lower body exercise, like, on a different day, you still run more of a frequency issue um, with that. So, um, again, you you have to understand and and you have to know and recognize the intrinsic value of recovery um, and and what it can do, the central nervous system, you know, sympathetically and parasympathetically, uh, and, and understand and know the advantages and disadvantages of each, and for myself personally, in the last two to three years, I've been doing you know four days per week, you know Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. You know I have Wednesdays are off, and then the weekends are off, uh, unless I'm training for a contest. And um, y- you don't run the volume. Uh, you sort of it's sort of a, a moderate um, balance between volume and frequency. So you get the frequency, you can still um, train to a fairly high intensity level. I um, mean, you can still have a, a, a pretty, pretty good volume component too. So, from my experience, that I think that um, works works the best, just from my experience. But for example, just recently, um, I've done like an entire day's like worth of you know arm training or something. Just so every once in a while, I still go back to some of the you know body part splits or whatever, I mean, because it's it's fun. You know, you need to do something different and have have some moderation in there.
0: So, how do you split it up, John? I mean. Yeah. On the on your usual training when you're what that's not specific body part oriented, right? So if you're doing a two on one off, two on two off, right?
1: So yeah, like for what I've been doing, Monday and Thursday is um lower body, then Tuesday, Friday is upper body. Like I said, Wednesday and the weekends are off. So I usually I, I do movement training. So ninety percent of what I do are movements, the rest of the ten percent um, uh, incorporates conditioning, cardio, um, and things of that nature, and a lot of core training. And I mean, the only t- type of body parts I still do are arms and calves. Everything else that I do are pure movements. Even some of the even some of the single arm or single leg stuff, um, they're they're more movement based. You know, and sometimes I still do like some machines, like lying leg curls or whatever. But granted, I guarantee that 90% of what I do is movement based. And because, like I said, I did all the, you know, the major muscle groups type of stuff the first four or five years of my training. And I, looking back, I got nowhere. I didn't get any bigger. I didn't get any stronger. And, you know, for those that are listening, the movements, um, the basic movements are, um, you just can't go wrong with them.
0: Can you explain those to everybody just a little bit? What do you mean exactly by movement-based?
1: Well, movement-based, for example, like squat, deadlift, overhead press, to throw in lat pull-downs, barbell rows, you know, the benches, incline benches, um, and all the, you know, variations versus, you know, machine curls. So stick with things, the movements that require more total body effort and demand and less of the pure isolation type of exercises.
0: Like compound movements, multi-joint movements.
1: Absolutely. Okay. No, and I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying that. Well, don't ever do you know single joint or isolation movements. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm
0: saying oh, sure, sure.
1: The majority, yeah. The majority of what you should be doing needs to be multi joint compound movements.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, how, no, how I, do you? understand that camp too. I mean, it's. Uh, I think no matter your goal, I people have this 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 fallacy. They look at these bodybuilders and these programs, and they don't realize that you know for. Fifteen years, Ronnie Coleman was spending his time dead lifting and squatting, and now, sure, he does a bunch of his other stuff, and it's to bring up weak spots. He's doing it for a reason, not for you know, you know. He's already a truck. You know, you can't you can't expect to turn a Ford Focus into a truck overnight.
0: <laughs> right, right. So, can you give me an example week, Phil? Like, if when you're training for something, uh, first of all, are you doing like a four day a week? What are you doing?
2: I'm, mine's, you know, now I've changed because I'm in Highland Games and I'm trying to figure out how to, to do more, more time in the field and this and that. So I'm like, I'm having to make this shift in my head. I've been in, you know, my sport has been in the gym for the last 10 years. And now my sport is out in the field. So I'm, I'm having to think of the gym as assistance work only. So it's, I'm going in like five, six days a week now. 30 minutes, I'm hitting one move, I'm getting out. And then I'm going throwing. But that's because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gym strong and field weak right now. Okay. But um, powerlifting wise, it was it was just like John, four days a week, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, movement based.
0: Hopefully, everybody, who... go ahead.
2: Uh, like squat, squat and and rows, um, or bench and rows, squat, um, overhead press and chins and deadlift. You know, those would be the four different days.
0: Uh, I'm hoping that people who are listening are getting the gist here. Whether you're listening to John or Phil, uh, and it's similar with bodybuilding. To be honest, these guys are sort of taking a. At least when Phil was talking about his powerlifting work, it's sort of a midweek day off and then a weekend or a weekend day off. It's 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 very uh, handy not to try to lift super intense and with high volume more than maybe two. I'd say ideally two days in a row or something, and that's what be- becomes very difficult with a lot of like collegiate athletes that I used to work with because their coach has them working out three hours a day, six days a week, and I mean, they'd get a weekend day off and that's cool, or they'd even say, should I take both weekend days off? Well, maybe, but I would always tell them as a sort of biologist, as a physiologist, I really wish you could take a day off in the middle of that big chain of days, you know, of volume and intensity. Cause you, like, like John was saying, there's a sort of a threshold there. There's a threshold for growth and improvement, but there's, there's another threshold just up the ways a little bit that's for overtraining and you start going stale, you know, and what do coaches do? They say, Oh, he's not, he's not uh, performing as well. He must be sandbagging or he must be out of shape. He needs more laps. He needs more training. And, and you're like, Oh God, or, or he needs to eat and sleep and recover. So he's fresh again.
2: you know. And I, I think that's the two things people don't get is that, you know, if I go in and bench and row hard, even if I go in the next day and squat, it's going to affect that. You know, it's our body is a whole living organism. And, you know, just because I've only worked my right arm doesn't mean there's other parts of me that aren't wore out from my central nervous system to just mentally fatigue. And, um, Absolutely. I've actually you know, the, uh, one... the worst okay. argument I hate hearing is when people say, well, how do construction workers do it then? They go out there every day. Well, I'll tell you, I worked construction for 10 years. I've built schools and bikes and everything else. It's not like the gym. When you're working in instruction, you're pacing yourself and only giving enough effort to get the job done. When I'm in the gym, I'm in there killing it. You know, it's totally different. You know, you bet, absolutely. And I've even made the mistake. um, And and you
1: learn, you know, through competing and through gym stuff. There's been numerous times, especially last year, where I would be training for a contest, like on a Sunday, and we, we would do, say, you know, three or four events, and then the next day. Monday I would do like a moderate to heavy squat or deadlift, um, and then plus a few other things. And then the next day Tuesday I would, you know, do a moderate to heavy like overhead press plus the rest of the workout and you know by the time by the time I got to Tuesday's workout I was just absolutely fried. You so know, what I did uh this past year, um in the summer if I would do event day, have like a lower intensity or moderate upper uh, lower body session the next day, like single leg deadlifts, dumbbells, um barbell glute bridges, you know, core and some calves, and maybe condition maybe a you know a light conditioning session. And then Tuesday it will come back in and then hit it hard. And then Wednesday it'll be off, you know, hit it pretty hard, Thursday, moderate day, Friday. Off Saturday and then do event day again on Sunday, and that actually works, you know, uh, pretty good as opposed to you know three days in a row just, just
2: killing
0: it. So, right. I, I'm going to share one thing that I've been interested in for the past couple of years now, and I, John and I have talked about this a few times. But I'm actually a, a fan of at least my brand of undulating periodization, and and really what that is is instead of taking uh, a whole you know, several week period to focus on just strength or just size or, or what have you. Uh, It's, and and, you know, I'm sort of ectomorphic. I don't have a big frame like these other two guys on the call right now. So I got to be careful. I will ruin myself. And, and I have in the past. And, but anyway, the point being is I'll do some heavier stuff like the five sets of five. But if I did that every week, you know, ad infinitum, I would destroy myself. So I'll do that for like, 2 weeks in a row. And then I'll do a light day, you know, and I'll I'll do like uh, just get a huge pump, do like 20 reps per set, you know, but one of the things I quickly learned was light day does not mean easy day uh because it's so exhaustive to do that high rep stuff, but especially after talking to uh, some of the guys from Stu Phillips lab that you know, you can really stimulate protein synthesis very nicely, you know, with the whole motor unit size principle, you know, you're still activating some of those bigger units. And the cool thing about undulating periodization, the theory behind it, which I think is very sound biologically is on the high rep days, you're not dumping that same amount of electricity down your nerves. Like Phil's talking about, you know, like the difference between a 700 pound pole versus what a construction worker does. I mean, there is a uh, light years of difference between the intensity there. So on your high rep days you don't have that, you know. It's more like glycogen depletion or something, but you're never going super you know nervous system over the top. Uh and then the flip side is on the days that you are going high nervous system activity, real heavy weight kind of stuff, you're not really in the gym long enough to deplete all your glycogen. So you actually give yourself a chance to replete you know, put back some of that glycogen. So I love that kind of back and forth thing. It's a nervous system stressor on one day, and it's more of a, you know, glycogen and maybe muscle tissue stressor on another day. Uh, and, you know, and we could talk about all the different kinds of periodization, but that's probably a, a, a talk for another yeah, day. Totally I'm uh, <laughs> so, sorry a little bit for the tangent, but, you know, when I think about, because I'm body part specific, right? I mean, I can't say I don't care about how much I'm lifting, uh, but not as much as maybe you guys. You know what I mean? It's important for me to lift heavy. I, I really don't like fluff bodybuilders. Never did. I've always liked guys like the Platzes and the, and Ronnie Colemans and people like that because there's no way you can get physiques like that, that real thick, deep look unless you're doing some power, brother. You've got to do some power. So anyway, um, yeah, so that's, that's good stuff. I hope we're getting across the message here that, You know, a four day per week is uh, usually a pretty good mix up whether you're doing body part splits or you're focusing on movement specific types of things. So am I missing anything? Is there anything else you want to?
2: He's going more than that. You've got to be really mature. Like me right now, my plan is like five or six days a week, but you know, I'm throwing too. So it's, you know, I know on days like yesterday, it's like I'm just beat up. So I didn't do a damn thing. You know, and it just takes yeah. a very mature attitude to do that. And, you know, just to clock out and take the day off and know that, hey, it's going to actually do me more good than bad. Right. Um, just to walk away. And that's hard to do, especially in the beginning. I mean, it takes years to to get to that point. Yeah. And you don't know if – got to know that, you know, I'm not just being a sissy. You know, I'm walking mm-hmm. out for a reason. So, mm-hmm.
1: I think another point, a uh, helpful tip to kind of, you know, point out is that a lot of people just don't really know when to, you know, deload or, you know, have those have these unload weeks. And you don't necessarily have to take, like, the entire week off and just do absolutely nothing. But for the novice and intermediate individuals, you know, when they're first starting out, I mean, they can go 8, 10, maybe up to 12 weeks before, you know, they really need to take, you know, unload or deload week off. For, you know, highly advanced guys like ourselves or elite individuals, I mean, I find myself doing a you know unload deload week every like four to five weeks, and it, it, it's just it's simply and it doesn't matter what I'm currently doing if I'm training for a contest if I'm doing some more hypertrophy or strength power stuff. It's just I know you kind of have to know your body, like Phil said, you got you gotta have you gotta be mature enough to know when it's time that that you need some extra recovery time, um, and that's something that that I don't think that, that has been elucidated very well. Um, Either in the strength training literature or just overall, you know, when is an a, a appropriate amount of time to just kind of take a little bit of time off? Because if you look around, I mean, no one really does that hardly at all, unless they're actually competing in some type of strength sports. And even when they do compete, because I've been guilty of this too, training for a contest, I, I, you just can't go. Eight straight weeks without taking some type of deload week, some you know, right in the middle of the training, and, and then rest up, and then come back, and you would just be more fresh, and your performers will just be uh, through the
0: roof. Yeah, like Phil said, that's a maturity issue, right? It's your motivation is not in question. You know what I mean? You have to actually use some discipline to bite the bullet and not go, you know, ball to the wall kind of training. You know, forever, in, like I said, ad infinitum just forever. And how many guys do you see do that? They, you know, And that's maybe where competitions is, you know, that can be a very good thing because it forces you into this ebb and flow. Like Phil said, you know, what, for every peak there's a valley on either side. And, you know, that's probably a, a pretty cool thing once you can get yourself psychologically to that point. So,
2: Well, I think, you know, John touched on this earlier where people just keep infinitely adding more and more stuff. Um, I gave clients all the time, they well, shouldn't I do lunges? Shouldn't I do this and this and this? And, yeah, they're all great, and there's 8 million different great exercises out there. But, you know, the, the, people don't realize there's there's one, but it's there's transfer, you know. If I'm squatting, it's going to aid my deadlift, you know. If, if, when you go in the, the gym for the first time, you know, let's say you can do 225, and you've never touched a deadlift bar before. Something created that, you know. So other things you do in your life do transfer over. And then it's just knowing the fact that add things for a reason, not just to add shit.
1: <laughs>
2: well, and, yeah, uh, that's the that. it. Yeah, they just kind of add
1: it to add it. They're not doing it by design like, like yeah. we are and some of the other competitors are. And that's really – that that's the fundamental difference right there. And 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 in addition to that – um. They're not sticking with anything long enough to get the effect out of it. I mean, they can't even do something for three to four weeks without changing something, um, and and so they just sort of – they're kind of like Lonnie's talked about before. They just kind of spin their wheels and not really get anywhere. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Good stuff, guys. I think we're just about out of time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Sweet. Well, thanks for coming on the show, John. I appreciate that.
2: Oh,
1: absolutely. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Good to be on again.
2: Yep. Nice um, thank you for coming. I also want to say I got the um, and and John's part of it actually. Uh, the Lift for Hope ebook should be out any time now. Got like 120 pages, and the proceeds oh. go to the event. It's only going to be like 10 bucks for the ebook. So great. Um, look for that coming up. So.
0: Yeah, people pick one of those up <clears throat> for a good cause. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks a lot. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the Donate button at www.ironradio.org. And make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, So please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got T-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.